Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. This is the Breaking Barrier series. We are Alex and Alicia, your hosts and resonant fangirls of all women who break barriers for others. I was going to switch those sentences there. Yeah, That's what were. I was going to do. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, during the Breaking Barrier series, we highlight individuals from all industries and walks of life who have blazed trails for others. Each month, we'll focus on a different theme topic, and the theme for this month for Breaking Barriers is Amazing Artists. Today, we're going to talk about Georgia O'Keeffe. So I didn't know anything at all about Georgia O'Keeffe. Right. She was just a name. In the, in like, I think she was an artist, yeah, yeah. but like I didn't know anything about her art. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one was a little different because we are we're talking about an artist that we can't show you their art. We're going to put it uh, this. Um, you have a website pulled up. Yeah. So we're going to put this website up in the description so you guys can kind of follow along with us. Um, as we talk about some of her artwork, right? Um, but yes, I it, we picked we picked her out of a book, basically, right? Yes, um, based off of you know her art contributions, she sounded interesting, so we decided to do a deep dive. Yeah, so let's talk about um, why we're talking about Georgia O'Keeffe specifically. So we're talking what about we learned. her what we learned. specifically because she's one of the first female painters to achieve worldwide acclaim from critics and the general public. She's one of the first female American painters to, like, achieve any sort of acclaim. Mm-hmm. American art was very new whenever she came into the game. Very true. Very true. She was also the first woman um, artist to have an exhibit at MoMA. Yeah. That's the Museum of Modern Art, for those of you that don't know. New York City. I've been there. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Same. Um, Let's start talking about Georgia. Okay. So uh, she was born on November 15th, 1887 to Francis and Ida O'Keefe in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. Her parents were dairy farmers and were of Hungarian and Irish descent. Actually, did you know that her maternal (laughs) grandfather was a Hungarian count? That's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. I... I think every time I think of Counts, obviously you think of Sesame Street. I think of Dracula. I mean, like, Dracula (laughs) always, but Count Count Dracula. I think of, like, Vlad the Impaler, because I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, (laughs) we could have a whole separate podcast about that. Anyway, um, Georgia was the second of seven children, and she actually decided by the age of 10 that she wanted to be an artist. So she kind of knew her mind for a really long time. Yeah. That's the thing. How many 10-year-olds could say that they knew what they wanted to be when they grew up and then actually achieved that? Not many. Yeah. But she very much had this mindset of, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and I know what I want throughout her whole life. And it's just going to be indicative. That's indicative of that mindset. Yeah. So along with um, her two sisters, uh, Ida, who was named after her mother, and Anita, she received art instruction from a local watercolorist in Wisconsin named Sarah Mann. So in 1902, her parents moved the family from Wisconsin to Williamsburg, Virginia. Georgia actually stayed in Wisconsin with her aunt until joining her family in 1903, and then she graduated high school in 1905. Mm -hmm. She then went on to attend the School of the Art Institute of Chicago um, for a year, 1905 to 1906, with um, John Vanderpool, who's known for his drawings of people. 
And she ranked at the top of her class. Yeah, she was studying under him and, and learning more about how to draw humans, which is a d- difficult thing. Yeah. I can just do stick figures. Me too. Yeah. I can put a dress on a stick figure. Maybe some curly hair. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, but not, not nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, due to the typhoid fever, she had to take a year off from her education, and in 1907... She moved to the Art Students League in New York City under William Merritt Chase, Kenyon Cox, and F. Lewis Mora. Um, of course, being New York City, there were lots of galleries opening and, yep. and open. So she went and visited galleries such as 291, which is the gallery that was co-owned by her future husband, Alfred Stieglitz. Um, in 1908, she learned that she wasn't able to actually finance her studies Um, Because her father had gone bankrupt and her mother was very seriously ill with tuberculosis. Awful news to get on all levels. Yeah. And um, so also to top onto that, she just she wasn't interested in creating a career as a painter based on um, the mimetic tradition, which I had to look up what that was. It's basically imitation. It's just copying other people's art. Right. Um, Which was basically the basis of her training, which I, you know, I imagine is um you know a, a, something that all artists learn at yeah. some point or another yeah. how to copy um but instead she took a job in chicago as a commercial artist and worked there for a couple of years until 1910 when she returned to virginia um to recuperate because she had the measles like how fortunate are we that none of these illnesses are really around anymore <laughs> yeah like the typhoid <laughs> fever yeah uh, tuberculosis measles my grandmother had tuberculosis. Really? It was really bad. Mm. Yeah. Unrelated. But yeah, completely. I'm grateful that we don't have to worry about these sorts of illnesses because it really set her back. Yeah. She she didn't paint for four years after being sick because the smell of turpentine made her physically ill. Like, how sick did it have to make you that you don't want to do the one thing that brought you happiness? I don't I don't know. I mean, that's... Oh. That's a serious illness. Yeah. Um, but so, the smell of turpentine is awful. I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying I, it, it must have really messed with her entire body, you know? Yeah. Um, so she returned to Virginia to recuperate from the measles and later moved with her family to Charlottesville. Um, she began teaching art in 1911. Mm-hmm. Um, she took a summer art class in 1912 at the University of Virginia from Alon Bement. Mm-hmm. Um, and through him, she became familiar with um, a colleague of her instructor named Arthur Wesley Doe and his work. I think it's Dow. Dow. Let's call him Dow. Okay. <laughs> All right. He was influenced, uh, Arthur Wesley Dow, uh, by principles of Japanese art regarding design and composition. And um, Georgia then started experimenting with abstract compositions and began to develop the her, her own personal style that veered away from, you know, realism, which is what she grew up learning, and into the more abstract. Right. Right. So she actually taught art in the public school system of Amarillo, Texas, from 1912 to 1914, and then was a teaching assistant to Bemet in the summers. She also took classes at the University of Virginia for two more summers, and also took a class in the spring of 1914 at Teachers College of Columbia University with Dow, 
who further influenced her thinking about the process of making art. Mm-hmm. Her studies at the University of Virginia were, were really pivotal in her development as an artist, um, particularly under the influence of Dow. Um, she, she did a lot of exploration, um, and, and her growth as an artist, she really helped to establish the American modernism movement, right. um, in art. And how busy was she at this time? Oh my gosh. Super busy. She's teaching, taking classes. I'm going to teach, I'm going to be a teaching assistant and I'm going to take classes. I'm also going to do all these other things. And art. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, art, I mean, making art takes a long time. Especially paint. Right. Painting is not it's not a easy. Quick thing. Yeah. No. I mean, maybe not for us because we are terrible at it. But well, no, but I'm I mean, I've seen, you know, some artists um, you know, paint and uh, they it's it's a it's a huge process. You yeah. know, I remember taking art classes in school. They had yeah. there was a huge process that we had to go through. Yeah, it's not like one layer of paint. You right. gotta do multiple layers, layers. Layers and layers, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, unrelated. <laughs> in late, not really. In late 1950, she taught f- 15. 15, <laughs> not 50. Sorry, not not caffeinated enough. Apparently, <laughs> she taught at Columbia College in South Carolina. While there, she completed a series of highly innovative innovative charcoal abstractions based on her personal sensations. I tried to find these and I couldn't, but. Yeah. I don't know um, what that really means based on her personal sensations, but like what felt right maybe. Yeah, but I think that it probably means like um, you know, she's just trying to express the way that she's feeling. Yeah. So, you know, feelings as art. So in early nineteen sixteen, she was in New York at Columbia and sent those drawings to a friend, Anna Pulitzer, who showed them to Alfred Stieglitz. He found them to be, and I quote the purest, finest, sincerest things that had entered 291 in a long while. Remember, 291 was his gallery. Yeah. End quote. And he said that he would like to show them. So in April 1916, 10 of her drawings were exhibited at 291. That's awesome. Yeah. And so in 1916 as well, she painted Blue Number 2, which is one of her most well-known paintings. And mm-hmm. I have that pulled up right now so Allison I can look at it. Um, but it's just it's abstract yeah i'm not sure what it evokes for me um i'm one of those people that has to like soak it in for a while Mm -hmm. uh but yeah it's uh it's an interesting painting she was apparently playing the violin at this time and so they think that these naturally because what else yeah she's bored yeah um (laughs) these scroll uh, shapes on there are probably mm-hmm. her view of the violin as she's playing it. Yeah, I see that. And then the um, the, the streaks. Yeah. The bluish streaks are maybe, I don't know, the, the bow? So maybe it was like she was trying to convey music with art? That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. We, again, we'll put this link up that has all these uh, paintings on there so you can all see. So, um, that summer, 1916, uh, she was teaching for Bement. Um, and so after that summer, she, she became the chair of the art department, uh, beginning in the fall, 1916, at the West Texas State Normal College. Um, while she was there, she began painting a series of watercolors based upon the scenery and the expansive views during her walks 
including vibrant paintings she made of Palo Duro Canyon. Yeah, so she really enjoyed sunrises and sunsets. And walks. That's a thing, too, for her whole life. Yeah. Um, and through that, developed a fondness for intense and nocturnal colors. Like, the sunrise and the sunset yeah. is intense color. Yeah. I mean, so, you can see that. It's very heavily influenced throughout all of her paintings. Yeah. She painted to express her most private feelings. Um, this is a practice that she started in South Carolina at Columbia College. She never sketched them out. She just started painting. That's incredible. It, uh, so so <laughs> let me tell you a side, side story for a second. So when I was in high school, um, I, I loved art. I, I've always loved art. Um, I was a ballerina, mm-hmm. but um, I loved painting. And my um, art teacher, we did these um, paintings, and I had to, like, I had to draw them out, draw out, I'll have to show it to you, it's at my house, I still have it, um, but I had to do a portrait of somebody that I admired, and so I did, um, I'm not going to tell you who it is, you'll you have to see who, who it is, is. <laughs> you'll have to see who it is when you see, when you see this painting, but uh, he said that it was good, so we entered it into an art fair, and uh, I won like third prize or something like that, awesome. but it took me so long to do this, and sketching it out actually took the longest mm-hmm. so to be able to she just like yeah, walks up like, and is like meh, meh. Freehand. yeah that's amazing i don't know what it what it would be like to have that sort of skill yeah i mean i can so my medium is clay mm-hmm. i very much um like making pottery and all various forms different techniques um we'll have to go do that friend yeah you. yeah um like i can throw out bowls and cups like <laughs> nobody's business like i could make you an entire dinner set i, I in, want a vase like one sitting i can make you a vase in 10 minutes excellent like, i can't wait to see this that's vase. my medium that's how i interact with art mm-hmm. um but i can't imagine like i've painted and it looks like something my three-year-old could do <laughs> And so I can't imagine having that sort of skill where she just just starts painting, yep. particularly like with these flower things that are coming up. Like, yeah, that yeah. seems like you would need to sketch it out because it's just so, so detailed. Detailed. It has all these lines in it, but now she just like just walks up and starts painting. Uh, my best friend Heather, she um, she does freestyle. She loves paint. I don't understand. She loves paint. I I mean I but do. She's excellent. I I accept that skill, but I just don't have it. <laughs> Um, okay, so anyway, there is, uh, you had an example for me. Yeah, Light Coming on the Plains, number one. It was painted in 1917. I don't have a picture of it. Um, I, I did see it. I did I did look it up. Yeah. I, I saw it. Which yes, is, it's very interesting. Uh, it's a painting of the Texas Panhandle. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I actually, there's three of them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I saw all three of them. We'll try, we'll put them up too. And some of the people that um, were at the college who were asked later what they thought her paintings, like, were they indicative of what it looks like? And she said, I can't remember the woman's name, but she said that, you know, it's the most beautiful painting she's ever seen of the Texas Panhandle. Like, it's indicative of what it looks like at its best. Hmm. So. Well, we'll have to go and see. Good job, Georgia. Um, anyway, so uh, this was in 1917. Yeah. Um, she, let's, let's talk about her 
personal life for a minute. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute. We're real spicy about this. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> she developed a close personal relationship with Alfred Stieglitz, who, as we mentioned, was a co-owner of 291, an art gallery in New York City. And he started providing her with financial support, a residence, and a place to paint in New York City in 1918. He was actually married to someone else and moved in with her. Like later that year, it was yeah. like, that, like July or something. Or yeah. yeah, he moved in with her and sort of brought her into his, his circle. circle. So she got to know many of the early American modernists and a lot of photographers um, Lots of big names. Yeah. So Charles DeMuth, Arthur Dove, Marston Hartley, John Marin, Paul Strand, and Edward Steichen. Uh, is that Steichen? I think it's Steichen. I'm many, not good at pronouncing names. Many of them were photographers because Alfred himself was a photographer. Mm-hmm. So, um, but she, looking at their, their work, she was influenced by their work to do stills. Mm-hmm. And that's where she goes next in her yep. evolution, if you will. However, um, around this time in 1918, there was a, a very large flu pandemic that happened in the U.S. Oh, yes. In February of 1921, um, Stieglitz's photographs of Georgia were included in a retrospective exhibition at the Anderson Galleries. Um, so apparently, you know, he was a photographer. Uh, he took many photographs of georgia Mm -hmm. um during their time together um lots of face and shoulders um but i mean most of them were in the nude which mm -hmm. at the time caused quite a stir considering he's still married to another woman right right um let's not forget that right (laughs) uh when he he retired from photography in 1937 um there were more than 350 portraits of georgia Mm mm-hmm in 1924, he divorced his wife and married Georgia. It's great. Um, okay. Uh, as a side note on the 350 portraits of her, how many women have we spoken about that there was one picture? Mm-hmm. And I, I love that with Georgia O'Keeffe, there's such a body of work. So we can see all these different photos of her looking over her shoulder, like lots of different poses. So um, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I really appreciate the fact that I was able to see her face in a good, in more than one good photo mm-hmm. and know what she looked like. Well, I mean, some of the women that we've talked about um, in the past had no photos. Yeah, they have <laughs> no photos, but I mean, also they're, you know, little uh, further back in history, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. So, in any event, um, she began creating simplified images of natural things like leaves and flowers and rocks. I think influenced by the photography. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so too. If you look at his inner circle, yeah. Um, and so, an example of this is the green apple, which was painted in 1922. Um, she said, "It is only by selection." by elimination and by emphasis that we get to the real meaning of things. So the green apple was supposed to depict her idea of a simple but meaningful life. Okay. Uh, Blue and green music. She painted in 1921. 
Um, she was trying to put music onto paper in terms of painting. Um, and then we have Petunia number two, 1924, which is a flower photo picture of a painting. Petunia. Yeah. Um, of, I, I love that she named all of her her pieces like Petunia number two, blue number four. Well, yeah, like, we get into Roman numerals later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think she runs out of numbers. Yeah. She painted a lot of flowers. Yeah. I think um, there were about um, 200 flower paintings yeah. um, that she had by the mid-1920s, which, I mean, she was the mo- she was most famous for those depictions of flowers. I mean, I think we've all seen them, or, or at least copies of those paintings mm-hmm. that um, have been, like, mass-produced for, like, doctor's offices or, yeah. um, like, uh, office buildings or something like that. So, um, yeah, the... the these depictions were like large scale depictions of flowers as if um, you're looking at the flower through a magnifying lens. Mm-hmm. Like her um, her portrait of oriental poppies, red canna or black iris. Right. Um, so in 1925, she started being more influenced by precisionism which is the first indigenous modern art movement um, in the U.S. and the precursor to modernism. Mm -hmm. So it celebrated the new American landscape of skyscrapers, bridges, and factories in a very cube-like way. Everything is very boxy and cubed in the paintings. Um, She has um, the Radiator Building Night New York. Which which, we're looking at right now. Yeah, Um, It's very tiny. I'm sorry, I don't know how to make it bigger. Click on it. There we go. All right, that's bigger. Yeah, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very boxy. And I love um, the color, so that's again, the intense yeah. nocturnal colors. New York Street with Moon, that's painted in nineteen twenty five, and City Night in nineteen twenty six. Um so she's sort of going between painting these flowers to painting these buildings. Um, if you wanted to look at examples of the flowers, Oriental Poppies from 1927, mm-hmm. Red Canna, 1924, Black Iris, 1926. Um, one of her paintings uh, called Jimson Weed sold for, get ready, 44 million, thousand dollars making it the world auction record for any female artist this was in 2014 mm-hmm. wow the sale was more than three times the previous world record and one of the walton heiresses bought the painting wow that's incredible mm-hmm jimson weed um do you have a picture of that one yeah, okay while you while you say that i'll i will I'll, I'll move on a little bit. So um, let's move forward to a little bit into 1928. Um, Alfred Stieglitz, her husband, he had an affair uh, with a woman named Dorothy Norman. And um, Georgia then lost a project to create a mural for a Radio City Music Hall. Um, I mean, obviously, um, you know, and evidently she was depressed by her husband's affair. Um, and she was hospitalized for depression. Mm-hmm. And then in 1929, she traveled to New Mexico, where she went on 
a lot of backpacking trips, like we were talking about. She loves hiking and, yeah. um, you know, exploring, going on walks, um, which she explored the mountains and the deserts of the region in New Mexico. Right. Um, so, as an aside, the Jimson weed, it's just like white flowers. I mean, they're beautiful, yeah. but they're white flowers. Okay. And then... Um, the Lawrence tree... Yeah, mm-hmm. this, this one, this she painted the Lawrence tree around this time. Yeah, so the Lawrence tree is directly related to the landscape of the Southwest United States. Um, she painted that at this time, and then she also painted. Oh, there's Blue Green Music too. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then she painted um, several renditions of the historical San Francisco de Assisi Mission Church at Ranchos de Taos. Her painting of a of a fragment of its silhouette against the sky captured it from a new and unique perspective. I guess that a lot of people had come and painted views of this church, but mm-hmm. she got it from a different perspective and it became very popular. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 20, 1929, so she, she visited in 1928. After 1929, Georgia spent part of nearly every year working in New Mexico, and she just she loved to explore that land. Um, I thought this was really cool. In her Ford Model A, um, just to find some inspiration, I guess she would go on some long drives and yeah. you know, park somewhere and then backpack, um, you know, to find yeah. some inspiration for her um, her rather distinctive architectural and, and landscape forms that were reflected in that area. She would go and look for, like, skull bones and... Like rock yeah. formations yeah. and stuff like and, that, yeah. And paint them. Yeah. Skulls. <clears throat> yeah. So cow skulls. she painted cow skull red, white, and blue in 1931. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so she didn't work from late 1932 to the mid-1930s due to exhaustion and poor health slash a nervous breakdown. Well, because Alfred, once again, has <laughs> continued his affair with his beau, no, no. Say what you wrote in there. I wrote side piece. <laughs> Dorothy. <laughs> um, so she didn't actually paint again until 1934. She had a really tough time um, with all of that going on. And she went to actually Bermuda in 1933 to 1934 to help recuperate. And she returned to New Mexico in 1934 to paint. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually completed one of her most well-known paintings, uh, in 1936, it's called Summer Days, and it depicts a desert scene with a deer skull and, and these, um, you know, beautiful, vibrant flowers. Yeah. I, I did see that one. It's, it's very beautiful. hmm So in 1938, I, I love this story because I just think it's really funny. Um, she would offer to travel to Hawaii by the Dole Food Company. To create two pineapple paintings for them to use in advertising. So she jumped at the chance. This offer came at a critical time for her career. You know, she was sort of losing the interest of people. She was losing momentum. Yeah, critics were like, we're tired of looking at other scenes. (laughs) Um, I think she got criticized for that a lot during her career. Yeah. 
like for exploring one thing really thoroughly. Mm-hmm. She was 51 at the point at this point and looking for a little bit of reinvention. So she arrived February 8th, 1939 uh, and spent nine weeks in Hawaii visiting Oahu, Maui, Kauai. How do you say that? We just went over that. I'm terrible at pronouncing okay. things. In the actual island of Hawaii. Um, she had her most productive time uh, in Maui. She had complete freedom to explore, you know, go for walks mm-hmm. and paint. And so it was a vivid period of art for her at this point. Um, she painted flowers and landscapes and traditional Hawaiian fish hooks. I mean, think of the, you know, the lushness of Hawaii. I mean, I've never been to Hawaii, uh, but, you know, you see it on TV. You see it in movies and TV and stuff like that. And, um I just think that there's a lot that she had to paint, you know, mm-hmm. things that interested her, you know, nature. Think how different it is from the Mexico as well. Yeah, too, right. right. It's totally different. Yeah. She didn't actually paint the pineapple, though, while she was there. Yeah. So <laughs> she got back to New York. Um, she actually painted 20 additional verdant paintings, but didn't actually complete the pineapple paintings until they sent her a pineapple plant to her studio or like paint these (laughs) talk about passive aggressiveness yeah um okay so in 1943 um after the after she had painted her pineapples Mm -hmm. um she had her first one woman retrospective at the art institute of chicago her second was at the museum of modern art moma in Manhattan in 1946. And as we said at the beginning of the podcast, she was the first woman artist to have one at MoMA. This is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Um, Talk about blazing trails. Right. How many other women Art have been has historically been dominated by men? Yes. And to have a female artist hit this point of fame that she was able to get into MoMA, which is like arguably the most well-known and sought after art venue. modern art yeah venue. is impressive mm-hmm. um actually the whitney museum of american art began an effort to create the first catalog of her work in the mid-1940s so they started compiling things then um in 1946 shortly after she arrived in new mexico her husband alfred suffered a cerebral thrombosis she immediately flew to new york to be with him he unfortunately passed away on July 13th, 1946. She buried his ashes at their home in Lake George, and she spent the next three years mostly in New York, you know, settling his estate, getting all of that sorted out, mm-hmm. but moved permanently to New Mexico in 1949. She met a photographer in the 1940s named Todd Webb that took photographs of her, um, as did, you know, numerous other important American photographers. She's always had a very, like symbiotic relationship with photographers yeah i mean i think that stems from alfred right but she also didn't look like a lot of other women true she had i don't want to say severe but she had just like a very severe countenance yeah just like i know who i am she was kind of depicted as like a loner like a like a lone wolf yeah a lot of the photographs showed her as sort of like prickly Mm -hmm. and you know somebody you wouldn't want to approach yeah yeah. Um, so Todd Webb, he moved to New Mexico in 1961. Um, and her his photographs portray her differently than all the other photographers. Um, and he, he really showed a side of her that portrayed her 
um, you know, as quiet and calm instead of being, you know, a prickly uh, loner or, or, you know, have, being so severe. Um, and his ability to do that, um, to show that different side of her, suggests that they had a, a relaxed and close personal relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting that he was able to capture a side of her that nobody else was mm-hmm. up to that point. Um, so also in the 1940s, she made extensive an extensive series of paintings of what is called the Black Place. So here's one of them for you. Yes, I, uh, these were very interesting to me. For your view. Um, it's a it's rock like a- formation that she found near her home. Mm-hmm. Um, she also made paintings of the White Place, which she called, which is a rock, a white rock formation that was located near her house. Yeah, there were two homes. There was the Ghost, Ghost Mansion, Ghost Ranch. It was ranch, yeah. Ghost Ranch, that's what mm-hmm. it is. The Black Place is near Ghost Ranch, mm-hmm. and the White Place is near her home in Ibiqui. Mm-hmm. So she started painting that. A lot. Yeah. 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 And um, so then she also painted Ladder to the Moon in 1958. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1950s, she really took her travel game up a notch here. She went to Europe. Well, I I mean, like, I can't really believe that she took it up a notch because, I mean, she she traveled around so much. Yeah. But she Um, traveled through Europe and then she went around the world Mm -hmm. and got more... Uh, what? What sort of what? I don't know what you're looking for. Inspiration. That's okay. the way. Inspiration <laughs> from all the things that she saw around the world. She actually did several rafting trips down the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Um, she just continued to explore her own art, but also the world, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. And in 1960, Worcester Art Museum held a retrospective of her work. Um, and then 10 years later, in 1970, the Whitney Museum of American Art mounted the Georgia O'Keeffe Retrospective Exhibition. So it took them, like, 25 years mm-hmm. to get everything together to do this exhibition, which is cool. Um, so in the mid-1960s, she started a series of cloudscape art. Sky Above the Clouds is an example of that, which we have here. Excuse me, Sky Above the Clouds 4. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, and it was based on her view from airplane windows. I mean, how many times have you like flown somewhere, looked out the window next to you, and just been in awe of the sky and and the, and the clouds? And you, yeah, you, you like take a picture, picture yeah. and you're like, wow, this camera does not do this justice. Mm-hmm. But she has her own mental camera that she can go home and actually recreate that view perfectly. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, the sky above the clouds floor is, it's so it's incredible. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you're right. You you take that picture out the airplane window, and it just it, it just doesn't, doesn't do right. anything justice. It's you know you're because it doesn't capture that that awe factor. Right. But Georgia had a way of capturing that, um, whether it be in flowers or the sky. Right. Or... Any of her her natural landscapes. Yeah. Um, um, so unfortunately in 1972, she lost much of her eyesight due to macular degeneration. 
which is a genetic disease of the eye that you lose your eyesight. That's mm-hmm. how it works. Actually, my stepfather had it. Oh, I didn't know that. And so she only had peripheral vision, which would be just Terrible. heartbreaking. Yeah. For her specifically. Yeah. For an artist of her caliber. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about how much that probably changed her outlook. Because imagine just starting to lose your sight. You don't know why. And then you go to the doctor like, yeah, this is going to be permanent. There's really nothing we can do. Yeah. Um, now they can do things. They can do yeah. cornea transplants. and mm-hmm. But this was the 70s. They couldn't do that then. Yeah. I was asked this question the other day. Um, and the, the question was, if you had to live without one of your senses for the rest of your life, oh, Alicia and I are in our 30s, uh, which would it be? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I could answer the opposite of that question. Like, what is the one sense that I couldn't live without? My sight. I would pick sound. Why? Why would you pick sound? Um... Imagine never hearing your kids' laughter. I don't have kids, so. Okay, well, I do. Yeah. I have all these kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, hearing the sound of music. I love music. So Same. not being able to hear it would be really hard for me. I mean, being losing sight would be, I'm not saying that would be difficult. That would be very difficult. Can I lose taste? <laughs> yeah, any one of your senses you could, you could lose. You can pick whichever one you want. I'm probably going to want to lose my sense of smell pretty soon. Well, yeah, you, you have babies on the way. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I was like, this is hard. That's a really hard question. Yeah. I couldn't imagine, you know, having to lose one of my senses, like, that I've had for my whole life. I would pick taste. Okay. That's what I would pick. Okay. But if I had to pick between sight and sound, I would lose my sight. Okay. Um, and let's, let's go back to talking about, okay, sorry, Instead not, of not about us. Yeah. <laughs> not <laughs> enough about us. Um, 1973. Um, so, so remember 1972, she you know, lost her, much of her eyesight. Right. But she kept painting with assistance mm-hmm. and she was doing watercolors at the time. Right. So about a year later, she hired a potter named, uh, Juan Hamilton as a live-in assistant and a caretaker. Mm-hmm. And he taught her to work with clay your preferred mm-hmm. medium. And he helped her write her autobiography. He, one, worked for her for 13 years. And um, her, her autobiography was published in 1976. And incidentally, it was a bestseller. Right. And she continued working in pencil and charcoal until 1984, even though she became increasingly frail in her 90s. I mean, she lived to be 98. Yeah. Um, She moved to Santa Fe in 1984, so remember, she's in her 90s, and she passed away at the age of 98, as you mentioned, um, on March 6, 1986. Her body was cremated, and her ashes were scattered, as she wished, on the land around her home, Ghost Ranch. Mm -hmm. Um, Following her death, a large large portion of her work... (laughs) words alex uh was transferred to the georgia o'keefe museum and her home in new mexico was designated as a national historic landmark right and so i i think she had a really long life and uh, yeah, even she though she had many health issues um i think that she and many prolific. challenges yeah she had a lot of challenges in her life yeah she had a 
prolific um, work mm-hmm. of artistry. Um, so and she I, left a really, I think she left a really big legacy. Yeah. A really big impact on, on the modern art world. Right, right. So one of the things, Georgia spent 70 years making art and contributing to the development of American modernism. She's notable for her role as a pioneering female artist and was a strong influence of the artists in the feminist art movement to the point where Judy Chicago gave Georgia a prominent place in her work called The Dinner Party. This is... Judy Chicago is another artist. Yes, who came after Georgia O'Keeffe. The Dinner Party is artwork that is widely regarded as the first truly feminist piece. Um, So she gave Georgia a prominent place in that in recognition of her role as a groundbreaking female artist. And many feminist artists found feminist imagery in Georgia's work but she refused to join the movement or cooperate with any all-women projects. Because she disliked being labeled as a woman artist. She wanted instead to be considered an artist. She was focused on the art. Yeah. That's all. Like, she didn't want to get into the politics of everything. And yeah. I can understand that. She just Absolutely. wanted to go paint her landscapes and be done with it. Yes. Um, so... As I said, she's a prolific artist. She produced more than 2,000 works over the course of her career. 2,000 in 70 years. That's a lot of, that's a lot of paintings. Yeah, that's, a, that's incredible. Um, yeah, so the, the, the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum um, is actually the first museum in the U.S. that's dedicated to a, a female artist. And its research center sponsors significant fellowships for scholars of modern America art, American art, rather, right. even today. Great. So not only did she blaze the trail for other female artists that wanted to... Well, in honor of Georgia, let's just say artists. Okay. We uh, like to make that distinction because yeah. that's what we do here. But in honor of Georgia, let's generalize it and say artists. She blazed the trail for other artists who would like to also take the path of being an artist by trade Mm -hmm. and is also inspiring and financing those that came after her. In the tradition of many artists being broke and not being able to afford their education. She was at one point as well. Absolutely. So to Georgia, we cheer to you. Uh, we toast to you, rather. Yes. Uh, here's to breaking barriers in the modern art world. To Georgia. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is Breaking Barriers and a Little Louder Now podcast produced by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you to my lovely co-host, Alicia. You're welcome. <laughs> um, for our great conversation. Thank you, listener, for taking some time with us to talk today about the amazing artist Georgia O'Keeffe. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring magnificent women who broke barriers. So if you'd like to catch up on what we're doing, if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd just like to join our community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check us out. We have previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts there. You can almost, also, not almost, also (laughs) email us at bridge at fi360.com. And connect with us on Twitter and Insta at FI360Bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime. 
by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I want you all to get a little louder now. now.